0: As we continue our study of God's second law, we are going to examine what God says about everything from honeymoons to financial indebtedness. The text is Deuteronomy chapter 24. Our study leader Dave Wurtzen introduces our study with some thoughts about a great giant who is now home with the Lord, but who powerfully proclaimed that the secular and the sacred should not be divided. Francis Schaeffer was a Presbyterian minister that ministered over in Europe, and he became in some ways a very strange dressing guy. He used to wear knickers, and and yet he really changed the world of evangelicalism. You say, Dave, how did he do that? Because as Francis Schaeffer began to minister, a great divide had taken place in evangelicalism and fundamentalism. In fact, it's a divide that still might be present in your life. You see, because of a tremendous conflict with the society and because of tremendous inroads from German theological thinking and several other factors, those that really believed that Jesus was the Son of God had withdrawn into their church. In fact, they they moved away from churches they grew up in. They formed their own new churches. They formed their own new schools. And they had set up a completely new society, a counterculture, you might say. But a tragic thing had happened they began to separate Sunday mornings from Monday mornings. They began to separate what they sang Sunday morning, what they read Sunday morning, what they prayed Sunday morning, what they said Sunday morning. They began to separate that from what they did on Tuesday morning and what they did on Wednesday morning. And so what began to happen is that we had, we had a group of people that believed Jesus is the answer. They believe that Jesus was the greatest name that there is. In fact, I had a lady ask me, a a lady that was here at church last week. She's just totally new in the faith. She wasn't really brought up like a lot of you studying the Bible. And she was saying, I'm really confused as I read this book. And I just love the, the refreshment of it. She said, as I read this book, I'm really confused. One minute they call this person Jesus. And another minute they call him God with us, Emmanuel. I thought his name was Emmanuel. Why are they suddenly calling him Jesus? Don't you love the freshness of that? Most of us have known the answer to that question from the time we were little, so we automatically know what the name of Jesus means. You'll call his name Jesus because he will save his people from his sins. He was picking up on the idea that the word and probably the way that he put it, he said, we're going to call him Yeshua. We're going to call him, he will save. He will be the one who will save. And Joshua, the Hebrew name Joshua, Yeshua comes over into Greek as Jesus, which comes down into English as Jesus. And so there was tremendous power because the name described what Jesus would do. And this girl said, I can't believe that. That's incredible. Because she's beginning to experience that incredible saving power of Jesus. But churches had tended to talk about the saving power of Jesus on Sunday morning, but never mention it on Monday morning. And so a great divide took place and Francis Schaeffer came forth almost with a prophetic voice saying that we don't need to have some doctors who happen to be Christians, we need to have some Jesus doctors. We don't need to have some lawyers who happen to be Christians. In other words, they have a law degree, and they happen to go to church on Sunday morning so that we call them culturally Christians. We need some Jesus-following lawyers. And that's not a contradiction in terms. We need to have not some CPAs that happen to be Christians, but we need to have some CPAs that are Jesus CPAs. They're obedient to Jesus. They're infiltrating the whole world of accounting with Jesus' obedience. In fact, one of our young people that is a CPA was talking about some of the conflict. As I sat in the hospital with her a few weeks ago, she was sharing some of the conflict that comes over being a Jesus-following CPA. Because sometimes they're asking you to stretch those books a little bit. And it's right on the line of being... Legal and not being legal. And a Jesus-following CPA, even though they're in their very beginning stages of their career, and it could blow everything, a Jesus-following CPA acts a certain way. Well, you can put your profession in. We don't need to have truck drivers that happen to be Christians. You see, we can't have a truck driver that comes here on Sunday morning and sings praise in the name of Jesus and then gets on his CB during the week and cusses his name when somebody just about rear-ends him. See, that's the problem. And that's what Deuteronomy is all about. What I love about what we've been doing in this Old Testament Pentateuchal book. When we're reading through the Bible, we come to Deuteronomy. And if we've made it through Leviticus, we're just barely hanging on for breath when we get to Deuteronomy. But let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Because as we study the book of Deuteronomy, what we're learning is that God is concerned about some really practical areas of your life. I want to ask you, how many of you would think, how many of you that are married... How many of you think, if you sat down with the Lord Jesus, that he would want to ask you how long you went on your honeymoon? In fact, how long did you go on your honeymoon? And what did you do when you returned from your honeymoon? Does God care how long a honeymoon lasts? Yes. How about if you're trying to help someone out? They've really come into bad times. They're really suffering. Their finances has crashed. Does God care about the way that you help them? What about respect for their individual rights? Maybe it's not the best thing to go barging into their house and begin to condemn them for the way that they live. Maybe the way they live is miles above the way that their parents lived and they think that they're progressing really well. Are you sensitive to their pride? Are you sensitive to their own individual needs? What about if they owe you credit? Do you take away because, because the burden is so heavy? Do you make it so it's impossible for them ever to make it, to ever repay? What about kidnapping? What should happen to someone that kidnapped someone? Does God care about all these things? And what we're going to do, one of the things that we do in Deuteronomy chapter 24 is that we start jumping from one practical subject to the next. I ask myself, Lord, what does length of honeymoon have to do with the way that I treat poor people? What does it have to do with kidnapping? And what does it have to do with individual responsibility? And one of the things that we find out from the Old Testament is that God in his Old Testament word isn't nearly as structured as us Westerners. You see, as I read this chapter, Deuteronomy 24, I want to try to get it all defined fit together into nice categories, and so I want to get all the verses that deal with one subject in one place, and all the verses that deal with another subject in another place, kind of like the Encyclopedia Britannica, and one of the things that I struggle with as I read this book, because that's the way that I think, that's not the way Deuteronomy thinks at all. In fact, Deuteronomy has no trouble saying a little bit about one subject in one place, getting you to think about it, getting you to ask some questions about it. Getting it deep into your life, and you have to begin to ask yourself whether you'll obey, and then it'll drop it for several chapters, and then throw in another verse about it. Now, I don't like that, because I want it all to be in one place, so I can get all in my head. But, you know, sometimes getting it all in my head and having it all in neat little categories doesn't get it into my life. And one of the things that Moses is really concerned about, and he's a lot better teacher than I am, is he knows that we need to constantly and repetitively be hitting on themes. And that's what he's doing in Deuteronomy 24. All the way through this book, we've been putting marriages together. We've been learning about how husbands and wives should relate. And last week we studied together about how we should look upon divorce. But as we looked upon the law that controlled a very bad situation, remember we learned in our study of divorce that Moses wasn't condoning divorce. He was just putting some controls upon a habit that was already taking place and a custom that, it be, that was rapidly becoming very powerfully abused. Does Moses just stop there? No. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 5. Now we have the positive side. How do you stop divorce in a culture? How do you get the divorce ratios to go down? Right now we shared, and we were studying last time we were together, we shared how divorce has become the norm. The real abnormal situation now in our culture is one man and one woman with the kids that they produce to live in one house. You watch Mrs. Doddfire, at the end, this, this, very, this, mo- this modern grandma. Six years old, and you know, it's really a man, but he's dressed up as a woman, and that's telling all kinds of things about our society. But he's telling all the dear little kids, there's all different kinds of families. Some families, very strange families, have one daddy, one mommy, and their kids. But there's lots of other families. Some families have two guys living together. Where they get their kids, only only heaven knows. But They do. And so there's some families that have two daddies living together. Some families have two mommies living together. And some families have no daddy in the home. They just have mommy living in the home. And some families just have daddy living in the home. But if there's love there, isn't it great? You notice how the society's pounding home a message to you? It doesn't make any difference what you do. It's your individual choice. You can do what you want to do. And that's the whole air that we breathe in our society. And as Christians, we've really bought into that. It's become part of our lives as well. It becomes part of what we laugh at and what we think about. As I've been studying the law of Moses and Deuteronomy, it just cuts across some of the basic assumptions that I begin to permeate my own life and, and the way that I feel towards what is good and what is right and what is wholesome from what is bad. And Moses says that we need to have one man and one woman living together with their children, and he has some very practical ways to make that happen. And look what he says in the next verse. Right after the section controlling divorce, he says this in verse 5. If a man has recently married, he must not be sent to war. He can't get drafted, for he can't be conscripted for war service. Or have any other duty. And all the recently married men said... Can't have any other duty laid on him. I love the way the Hebrew the Hebrew has it. The Hebrew literally has something along the fair. You can't put anything on him at all. No thing. Nothing. This guy's got to be free. Notice what it says here a little bit further. For for one week he must go to Cancun or go to Hawaii. No, it doesn't say that. (laughs) For one year he is to be free to do what? To stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he has married. And all the recently married wives said, Now, what's going on here? What's happening here? How does our society approach this? Our society approaches you're both working your heads off, you're probably both in school, you just finished school. You're probably both working 75 hours a week. You squeeze in a little bit of time on Friday, and you've really worked hard to squeeze in a little bit of counseling. You kind of come early Saturday mornings, like if it's in my own case, because that's somewhere where I can free some time up. You might come Tuesday night a little bit, and you squeeze in a little bit of time with your pastor, and you try to eke out a little bit of training, and then Friday, you leave work, you get showered and dressed, you come and have your wedding, and then you, have, you go to a hotel in Dallas on Saturday. Monday, you're right back into work again, and you just flow right down. Right? A lot of people do that in our society. Now, what happens when you do that? Do you realize that there's a tremendous transition when you get married? I want to talk to you. This this text is really important. You see, this text says, guys, when you get married, something really changes in your life. When you turn and the and the pastor says you may now kiss your bride and you turn and face an audience and the pastor says I now present to you for the first time with a great deal of pride and they name your name your life has changed you are no longer a single person you are now a married person but that doesn't just automatically happen you see legally it happens But it doesn't just happen psychologically. You have been a single person for, like when I got married, I was a single person for twenty years. And Mary was a single person, I won't tell you how, how old she was. And Mary had been underneath her daddy. For many, many years. And her daddy had taken care of her. And her daddy knew how to work on cars. And he knew about finances. And he was really a practical guy. And he really was very much the very center of Mary's life. And suddenly we're married. And life changes. Life really, really changes. But a lot of you don't realize that. You know what a lot of you are doing? A lot of you are single, what I call your single married people. What you did is you did get married, and you got the counseling, and you said the vows, and you got married. But if I were to analyze your life before you got married and after you got married, it's the same. You guys still go out with the guys. When the guys call, you do what you've been doing since you were in high school. And when the girls call, the girls go out and do what they did. The only difference is that now you legally and morally can go to bed together. That's not all that a marriage is. And then we can't figure out, why is the woman so unhappy? Why is it not working? And why deep inside is the guy unhappy? Why is so much conflict? Because it's really, really tough to get married. And it's tough to change. In fact, if I had my druthers, I'd like to take every single couple that I marry and put them in an airplane, fly them over the Sahara Desert with with backpacks on their back, and just barely enough water to make it, drop them right in the middle of the Sahara with mats, all by themselves. And two months later, if they make it out alive, (laughs) they will really, really be married. Really married. That's what this text is about. Only it doesn't say go to the Sahara. It says you've got to go home. That's a lot better than the Sahara. Aren't you glad I didn't write the law of Moses? <laughs> what it's saying is something really important. It's saying that we don't just automatically adjust to a new situation. And Moses, under the old covenant law, this is the old covenant. But it shows you how gracious and kind God is. God knows that it's going to be really hard for both a husband and a wife to transfer allegiances from dad and mom, from their single friends to an allegiance to one another. It's going to be hard to bond together. Under the old covenant, you had to take a whole year to do that. And what the old covenant made a man do is it made him stay at home. And he had to learn to really talk to his wife and how to really listen to his wife. And they they wouldn't even let him go to war. They couldn't use that big excuse. They wouldn't let him go off to a job. They made him stay there. When he got mad, guys, he couldn't just go out and do something else, which is what all of us want to do. You see, when there's conflict in relationships, all of us want to go and do something else. And that easily happens. And the woman couldn't just go and bury herself in the job that she was. They had to spend time doing the hard work to grow up. And that's how you learn to make someone happy. You see, Moses knew under the old covenant that in the beginning God made them male and God made them female. And God doesn't bring couples together according to Old Testament law and biblical law. God doesn't bring you to marry someone that's just like you. And that's why one of the most popular books in the secular marketplace right now is Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. And across our society, which is really incredible to me, this society that says there's no distinction between the sexes, that homosexuality is fine, that everybody can just be an individual, they can just do their own thing, suddenly one of the best sellers is a book that just shouts out from the very beginning, men are different than women, and women are different than men. Well, Moses knew that when he wrote, In the beginning God made them male, and he made them female." And God didn't cause a man to live with a man. He wanted a man to live with a woman. And oh, how are they different? Both men in the image of God, but really different. You say, well, Dave, this is the old covenant. Of course Moses told the Israelites that they needed to live for a whole year with their wife and make her happy and live with her in understanding and knowledge. But what about the New Covenant? Well, let's turn over to 1 Peter 3 and find out kind of the way the Apostle Peter applied this principle of a husband that learns how to make his wife happy. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. These are the verses that often get left behind. 1 Peter 3 verses 1 through 6 is all about a woman needing to submit to her man, needing to respect her man. And usually the male preacher runs out of gas before he gets to verse 7. But it's really important to look at verse 7 and it applies to what we're studying in chapter 24. Husbands, in the same way, I've been talking to the ladies about how, what, what they need to do. But in the same way, husbands, this is what you need to do. You need to be tender. You need to be considerate. Somebody was telling me this week, emphasizing again, dear friend, have you ever noticed how we're really considerate with people we don't even know? And we're totally inconsiderate with the people that we really know well? Can you imagine going into J.C. Penney's husband's and saying to the clerk that's checking you out what you've said to your wife this past week? Bug off! Bug off! me alone. I've had enough. I'm tired. Can you imagine talking like that to the, someone checking at J. What do you do at JCPenney? Oh, I'm very nice. Thank you. It's okay. Very considerate. It's an amazing thing. The people that we're the closest to were the most inconsiderate with. We do it with our kids. We do it with our marriage partners. And First Peter is saying the key to learning practically how to live every day It's to learn to be considerate with those that are right under your roof. To learn to be gentle and tender and considerate. He drives it home even harder. He says, as you live with your wives and treat them with respect. Treat them with respect. And then it says, as with a more delicate vessel. Not a weaker vessel, ladies, in the sense that you're not as valuable, you're not as important. It just says more delicate. I've often said to you, a garbage can is a lot stronger than a flower vase, but a garbage can is not necessarily more expensive and more valuable than a flower vase. Just because something's more delicate doesn't mean that it's not as valuable. And husbands and guys, as you deal with a woman, she is more delicate. You can hold her emotions in your hand. It's like holding, like I've shared with you, it's like holding a rose in your hand. If you crunch down on it, you'll crush all the beauty and it'll thorn you to death. And husbands, every one of you will hold your wife's personality. You hold her personality when you never tell her how beautiful she is. Somebody else will tell her that and she'll be gone. She'll be seduced. And a lot of you husbands sit here and you don't realize. You say, I had a husband tell me. Man, I told her so many years ago. I loved her. I think she's beautiful. I told her once and I meant it. That ought to last. It doesn't last. The Lord's built them delicately. They're built for praise. You, I mean, how many, when I, was a, when I was in college, I had my roommate, my roommate never came in after a haircut. He said, how do you like my haircut? My roommate never asked me that. He never, I never even noticed whether he had a haircut or not. I get married, married, Mary comes in. Well, how do you like my hair? looks gross. That doesn't work, guys. It doesn't go over. I never went with my roommate in college over to a store, and he said, hey, you like this suit? I said, who cares? Get whatever suit you want. In fact, let's get Bermuda shorts and get on with it. Man, you get married, and you go shopping, and she got to try, you got to look at, you like this, you like this. Mine to the man is, I don't know, get whatever you want. Passivity. That doesn't tell the woman that you appreciate her. It's not living with her according to knowledge. Knowledge is a big thing in my life. I have a quest for knowledge. Man, I'm hungry to read books. That's why I got my degree from Dallas. Because there's a passion in me for knowledge. But man, I can be totally an idiot when it comes to really knowing the woman that God gave to me. How about you? And I disobey Peter's command. He says, husbands, the key to your marriage, the the challenge of your marriage is to climb inside of that woman's personality that thinks so differently. And by the way, guys, this is the challenge of the ages. How do you handle, and how do you know, and how do you love a woman? It's a great mystery. If you like mystery stories, that's it. You'll never get it totally figured out. You'll try one thing one time, the next time you try it, it goes over like a lead balloon. That's the challenge of it. And guys get tired of it. I thought you guys wanted challenges. Peter says, husbands, your daily task." And when you start out, you need to spend a whole year. You need to spend a whole year when you first start out being really careful about delicately separating this newness in our life. Some of you older couples, there's a tremendous need in our church. We have several young couples that have now come back to our church family. You just got married or you've just come back from school and you're young and you don't have any kids yet? Where do you go then? Well, you do need to flow into the regular part of of the, of the church. You are an adult. But what about what I've been talking about? What about the hassles of learning to work through that first couple years of marriage? I want to share something even more important. What about all the young couples like that across this whole area? What about all the friends? As I interact with that young married age, they have played ball together with hundreds of of young guys all over the area. And the girls have been in cheerleading. They have been in school. You have interconnections all over. And a lot of your friends are struggling. They've already started to go in and out of different marriages. You know why? Because no one's ever helped them to learn practically and to discuss together how... Do we make the transition into marriage? How do we become a married couple? And how do we do it skillfully and well? What a mission field. I want you to begin to pray. Because right now, there's a tremendous opportunity right there in learning couples how to make one another happy. And some of the older couples that have learned by trial and error for the last so many years can have your life radically transformed as you get involved. The Lord wants couples to have those that are older and those that have learned how to do it to be interacting with those that are in that struggle so that we can have strong married families, so that we can conquer some of these divorce statistics. Moses was concerned about husbands and wives, young husbands and wives, learning to make the adjustment. Isn't it great to know that God's Word practically teaches how to make the adjustments, not only in our marriages, but also as we will learn next week as we conclude this study in our finances and in legal situations.